0: Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR103A2, Apologetics, I. Apologetics.
1: For this day that thou hast given to us, we thank thee for this further occasion of further study, for this special opportunity of having this visitor with us. We pray thy blessing upon him that he may be granted insight from thy word as he speaks to us concerning this matter of of apologetics. That thou wilt guide and direct us and help us in all things to submit our minds and our thinking and our actions to thy word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. one thing I wanted to, to uh, mention in, in opening with with uh, the class this, this today, Doctor Rustin, uh, one of the questions I think that I have the greatest trouble in answering, students, is a question that you were had put to you last time. Is the matter of if we really believe in the inability and the unregenerate mind is not the same as our mind, how can we appeal to it? You know, that's the question that uh, there's a great deal of difficulty with. Right. And I think that if you could elaborate on that perhaps as a starting point and then go on with you however you'd like to conduct the class
2: there. The question basically has to do with common ground. What common ground is there between the unregenerate man and the regenerate man? Now, in terms of what Scripture teaches us, and very definitely in terms of what St. Paul declares after Moses in the Song of Moses, (coughs) Romans 1, verses 18 following, the natural man, every man, knows the things of God, visible and invisible, that God is the maker of all things, and. He holds this truth. He suppresses it in unrighteousness. Everything in him witnesses to the truth. So that when you speak, though he resists you because of his sin, he still knows that you are telling the truth. One of the fundamental principles of apologetics that we must hold to is the noetic effect of sin. Now, in the Aristotelian, Hellenic, scholastic tradition, it is held that the mind of man is not tainted or affected by the fault so that the mind of man can reason impartially and objectively in terms of all facts that are given. As Christians, we cannot hold to this without denying the faith. We must hold that the fall of man, that sin, has tainted every aspect of his being, so that man as thinker refuses absolutely refuses to think as he should. His mind is depraved. It is twisted. So he rejects that thinking which leads to God. He suppresses the evidence in his own being that points to the Lord. However, this is the catastrophe for the natural man the only kind of thinking that brings a focus to his being is that which points to the Lord. Let me illustrate with a very homely illustration. My son had some car trouble not too long ago and uh, had a new motor put in his car. He is a student. He's working his own way through college. He's in his first year. He works four nights a week from 11 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning at a grocery store. Goes from there to class. So he is working hard and getting good grades. So he got this new motor and the car just did not work. It would sputter and cough and choke it wouldn't go anywhere. Well, when we drove back to the uh, shop with it, they lifted up the hood and looked at it. It was obvious that whoever had assembled that new motor prior to its installation must have had a few drinks (laughs) because they had put the wrong carburetor for the wrong car on his car. Naturally, it didn't work. Now, this is the way the mind of the natural man functions. Sin has deformed it. It cannot function properly. But when he thinks in terms of scriptural thinking, suddenly everything works. It curves, And the natural man knows it. And so when he resists, he is resisting everything that points to God, everything that points to his own health. This is why in one of the greatest texts of Scripture, I think, one of the most powerful, our Lord speaking as wisdom long before his incarnation, in Proverbs 8.36 said, By me kings reign. All they that hate me love death. He that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. So that the natural man, when he rejects the witness of the gospel, is rejecting life. He is choosing death. He is wronging his own soul. He is unable to function. Everything in him, therefore, witnesses on your behalf. So that the proper apologetic approach is not a rationalistic one. It is in terms of the whole counsel of God. It is in terms of the kind of apologetics that Van Til has developed. You cut out the ground from under him. You demonstrate to him that his mind, his being, could only function in terms of the law of God. Yes?
0: Um, when he thinks in terms of Scripture, then, then you work
2: properly. Yes. Does he have the natural ability to think in terms of Scripture? Does the, can the natural ah. man do this? Yes. <laughs> I don't like the term natural man. I don't think it's biblical, really. Fallen man. The natural man was the man God created. Sin is not natural. Sin is a deformation of man. God created man wholly good. Sin comes in as a deformation. And we are restored by God's grace. That estate in which we were created, and we find the fulfillment of that in the new creation. You see, but uh, the fallen man, yes,
1: right, mm-hmm. Dr. in this connection, Dr. Van Til uses the idea of a saw that sets wrong and cuts wrong, but yeah. it does have the noetic effects of sin, affect his, affected his logic. This is the thing that, that uh, I
2: think yes. maybe doesn't come through clearly in some of his writings. Yes, I, uh, he does go into that at one point where he deals with the laws of contradiction and so on. It has affected his logic because as he develops his logic, he develops it in terms of his own autonomy and his sovereignty. The Aristotelian laws of logic presuppose the natural man as the ultimate judge so that the law of contradiction in terms of Aristotle says in effect what my net catch does not catch is not fish what I say is a contradiction is a contradiction you see and we must not be bound by the Aristotelian laws of logic because the aristotelian laws of logic presuppose the autonomy of natural man as a fallen man as judge as god as his own principle of ultimacy. now uh, carnell of course is emphatic on using the aristotelian laws of logic and he says bring on your revelations if they do not meet the standard of Aristotle's logic, then we will have none of them. But he says they pass. Oh, but says another Aristotelian who isn't a Christian, I say they don't pass. (coughs) And my mind is just as ultimate as your mind, and where are you?
0: Yes? Well, I I having some problems with maybe, maybe just some of the words we use, when you say it doesn't function, Are we not, uh, do you mean that it can't function like a Christian man does chemically? uh, Or are you saying that the results of its function are
2: wrong? Let's say it malfunctions. (laughs) Uh, Now, my son's car was sputtering and going along, but it was not functioning in any true sense. So the fallen man is able to function in the sense that he works, he thinks, he produces a science, he invents, does some very remarkable things, which is a witness to the fact that he is made in the image of God. But in spite of all this, he continually frustrates himself, and he denies the validity of what he does. We will deal with uh, Einstein denying the validity of what he has done this afternoon at four o'clock in epistemology. He has to, logically, you see. He cannot say that there is a truth apart from man. Well, that's not functioning properly if you discover something of very great importance and then say that it isn't true because it can't be true, otherwise there's a God. So we're, we're
0: talking about spiritual matters here.
2: No. We're talking about matters of science. Einstein had uh, no concern with spiritual matters. But Einstein could not say that w- uh, the work he did was true. He had to say it was false. But still,
0: behind, behind this is the spiritual aspect. You know, repeat, he his mind functioned probably in the, in the scientific realm until he got to the point where he said, well, here. Now I'm just, according for example, we'll just say mm-hmm. According until we reach the point we said well there must be a god then he said well no this is not true yeah. well, so scientific right. so behind this is, is the spiritual aspect
2: the yes yes you're right up to a point he functions on the assumption there is a god there is a truth to nature a law in nature a god given order. But when he comes to the point where he must say, indeed, there is an order, and that's why I can produce scientifically valid work, he says, there is no order, there is no God, I have done nothing. It's all a work of the imagination. It has no truth. This is, is, I think,
0: uh, the reaction of of Anne Rand. She is reacting somewhat... Spiritual sense, no. I mean, no. He cannot mm-hmm. use anything to do anything good. But in, in the physical realm, I say his, his science and his I
2: mean, cosmology—they are good. They are good, but they are built on presuppositions he cannot have. I, I'm glad you mentioned Ayn Rand, because Ayn Rand, you see, begins with the self, the ego. That's her basic premise. But she calls her philosophy objectivism. <laughs> Why? Because she knows the epistemological problem we've been talking about in epistemology class. I don't know whether... Uh, you're, are, you're not... In, are you? oh. Well, we've been dealing with the epistemological problem, the inability of man to demonstrate in terms of his unbelief that there is a real world outside of his mind. He cannot prove it without admitting there's a God. Because then he would have to say there is a pre-established order, a pattern in the universe, a God-given eternal decree. So the natural man, in terms of his epistemology, denies all this. And he would rather say there is no order, I don't know whether the outside world really exists, I can't prove it intellectually, there's only brute factuality in order to deny God. And yesterday in the epistemology class, I quoted Vladimir Lenin, the Marxist. And Lenin, of course, as a modern philosopher, an epistemologist who is in this tradition, does not want to admit that there's a real world out here with order and law in it, because then he would have to admit God. Of course, he says, nobody except uh, some kooks like a Christian scientist or uh, somebody in an insane asylum will deny that there's a real world out there. But we cannot prove it in terms of our atheistic premises. So what we will do? What will we do? We will operate on the premise of naive realism. We will take it by faith. <laughs> Well, yes, in a sense, Plato posited it on faith, uh, a realm of ideas and the universals and a realm of uh, matter on faith. So they took, instead of God on faith, the material world on faith, Lenin and Plato. They cannot account for the world. They cannot account for it. So they either deny it's there or say we'll accept it in terms of naive realism. Yes. Oh yes. Uh, noetic effects of sin, and I have a section on this in my book, The One and the Many. This is a little plug. Uh, <laughs> is this the effect? upon knowledge of man's fall. In the Hellenic, Aristotelian, scholastic, Arminian tradition, man's mind, and sometimes man's will with a few thinkers, has not been affected by the fall. The rest of man has been. But his reason is immune to the fall. Therefore, he can think just as good since the fall as before the fall. And therefore, if you present man with the right kind of reasons, you will make a Christian out of him, in effect. In other words, he can be saved by knowledge. This is what it amounts to. We will be dealing with this point precisely in uh, epistemology this afternoon, faith and knowledge. Now, faith and knowledge in terms of Scripture are inseparable, but no man is saved by knowledge. No man is saved by reason. Man's reason is as fallen as the rest of him. In fact, man's reason is at work to subvert the knowledge of God, to hold it down, to deny it, to suppress it. So, This is what the noetic effect of sin means. The the fact that knowledge is tainted, that knowledge is perverted by the fact of man's fall. If you deny that sin has a noetic effect, you're saying in the Aristotelian, Thomistic tradition that sin has not hurt man's reasoning. And man can reason just as clearly when he has fallen as before his fall. Yes? Uh, I'm not
0: familiar with the term no etic, but I just need for you to
2: spell it. No <laughs> Spelled N-O-E-T-I-C Yes?
0: Periodically, uh, you hear people say that the Human responsibility and the authority of God run a parallel line and cannot be brought together. Notice in your book by what do you use the at the same time within the framework of God being decreed. elaborate on that
2: one? Yes, that's a good question, and a very important one for us to understand. The greatest statement of this is in the Westminster Confession of Faith on God's eternal decree. Now God is the first cause. God also has primary and absolute freedom. Everything that God possesses is absolute. This is why, because God is God. He predestines all things that come to pass. Now man is created in the image of God. He is the image bearer. Man is a secondary cause, not primary. Man has a secondary freedom, the freedom of a creature. Now, I do not have the freedom to say, go to now, next year I think I shall be 29 again. I don't have that freedom. Nor do I have the freedom to say, or to have said, I would like to be born at such and such a time or to postpone my life since I don't like the prospect for the next couple of years and uh, step back into the picture again at such and such a time. Or why wasn't I born into a millionaire family? It would have solved a lot of problems for me. You get the point. I can't do those things. There's a whole world of things I cannot do. Now, this is no inhibition on my freedom, is it? Do you feel inhibited and unfree and a slave because you cannot be 16 again? Uh, uh, If you were to ask my wife, she would also tell you that I am no plumber. But uh, it's a problem if anything goes wrong with the plumbing, a real problem. It's an expensive problem because we call someone in. I'm not free to do a lot of things that I would rather do than pay somebody else to do. it. I am free to be only what God created me to be. It's a secondary freedom. There's no violence upon me, you see. Now, if you were to tell me, uh, quit speaking now and pull a gun and tell me you're tired of hearing what I'm saying, you don't agree with me, this would be an imposition on my freedom because I want to speak. But I am free to do that which God created me to do. And even though everything that I am, he predestined to the very hairs on my head, there is no violence done to me. I am free to be that which I was created to be. I have responsibility. I have a moral accountability. Now, there's a mystery here, and we'll never understand it unless we have the mind of God, which we will never have. But the fact is that the mind is a secondary causality and a secondary freedom, and the only way you can have any kind of freedom on the created area is on a secondary basis. To illustrate, Greek philosophy could not accept this. Greek philosophy held to a very different picture. It believed that man was his own God. And as a result, Greek philosophy set out to exalt the man-God a primary freedom, primary freedom as essential to him. And the great thesis of Greek philosophy was know thyself. Not know God, but know thyself. After all, if you are God, then the most important thing for you to do is to study yourself. But the tragedy of Greek thought was that it ended up with total pessimism and cynicism and despair. Because man very quickly felt that, well, here I am, the free God, the Lord of creation, God overall, but my environment limits me. <clears throat> so I'm not entirely free. The stars, because they came to believe in astrology, limit me. My heredity limits me, my wife limits me, (laughs) my children limit me. Now, I'm not joking. This is the way they began to think, and so there was nothing but pessimism and cynicism and despair. There's a very interesting book on this subject contrasting these two. It's written by a man who's not a Christian. He's a classical scholar. I think he died recently. Charles Norris Cochran, Christianity and Classical Culture. It's now available in an Oxford University paperback for 245 The book may be in your library. Charles Norris Cochran, C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E, Christianity and Classical Culture. It's quite a remarkable book because what this scholar does is to say, here's a strange thing. When the church fathers came to do battle with the philosophers of Greece and Rome, the philosophers of Greece and Rome were defending the freedom of man, The church fathers were defending the freedom of God and were saying that man is totally predestined by God. And he said, what happened? As it wound up, it was these men who were producing free men who were standing up to the world and these men who were winding up saying man is nothing but a slave. And it all began by exalting man to the place of God And here, only as man was put under the predestination of God and made a secondary cause and given a secondary freedom that he had any freedom at all. And that's what he won. So, as he traces the matter intellectually, he says, it's no wonder the Christians won. They were the only ones with a doctrine of freedom. They had a doctrine of freedom because they believed in predestination. Now, if you want a good, popular statement of that concerning what's happened since the Reformation, Bettner's Reformed Doctrine of Predestination gives you a good statement. But here you have it, philosophically presented by a brilliant classical scholar. Yes? So I don't want to get
0: off on a wide tangent, briefly tell me you what your reply would be to something
2: Yes, I would say, on the contrary, it makes him a free man, and your attitude makes man into nothing. Because when man tries to be that which he is not, the first cause in the universe, his own God, it's a pretension that is the same as insanity. So when you tell me that you are not predestined by the absolute God, you are saying that you are sovereign, and I say, if you feel that you are God, you belong in an institution.
0: <laughs> you
2: see, we uh, I'm not asking that you be snotty to people unless they get impertinent and then pin their ears back. Do it kindly and firmly, but tell them off. <laughs> we must get over the idea that we are going to bring people into the kingdom of God by being nice. It's not niceness that wins people to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. One of the first things I learned in the ministry, which was a tremendous blow to my ego and then a tremendous comfort to me, I had a situation where this one family called me and they had a problem with their daughter. And they asked for my counsel, and they were ready to follow it. They were desperate, and everything I counseled backfired. It was one mess after another. I can't begin to tell you what a horrible series of blunders it was. I, I thought the counsel was good. It uh, was the kind of counsel I'd given again and again. I thought it was good, godly counsel, but everything backfired everything turned out horribly, monstrously wrong. The ironic part of it was that out of that horrible mess that I just don't want to go into, it's painful to recall now, 20 years or more later, the girl is a Christian, and the parents became Christians almost immediately, and all I could say was it was of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Well, you know, that was a tremendous lesson to me because I was, uh in so many other situations I felt I'd really contributed my nickel's worth. <laughs> well, <laughs> every nickel's worth I contributed in that case was a slug. So, uh, just proceed in terms of the word of God and a plain spoken reckoning with the realities of the situation. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to do it, not you. Yes? Along this line, I think there has been a hesitation for many to bring up
0: the subject of the sovereignty of God because it's offensive to those that you talk to.
1: And the idea has been, well, I don't want to offend him. And yet this is the very heart of the the presentation, our defense of the faith is that God is self-sufficient. And uh, their reaction and recalling to that is only that which the fallen creature will do. And uh, to me, of course, I've just come to the Reform faith the last few years, and uh, it was offensive to me. But when I saw who God was, uh, I mean, it made a difference. And I've noticed in my evangelism, presenting God as sovereign, that people have come to know Christ and I mean they've been genuine converted through the Holy Spirit. It may be even after I talked to
0: them and they were mad and they went back and studied and found it from God.
2: Right. You are so right. We must always begin with the sovereignty of God because if we don't, we are really falsifying the picture and... Of course it's offensive to them. I'm a Christian to whom the doctrine is very dear, but I still must confess because I'm far, far from perfectly sanctified. There are times when it's offensive to me, when I'd like to nudge God a little bit and say, couldn't you let me run things for about five minutes? I could straighten out a lot of things. (laughs) That's the sinful. They're urging me. But with regard to the sovereignty of God, if I may take a little time uh, to tell you a couple of incidents, if we can go from apologetics to witnessing, when I first went to the mission field after finishing seminary to an Indian reservation, the most isolated reservation in those days in the country, 100 miles from any paved road in those days, there's a paved road in there now. I was the only missionary in the area, and as a result, uh, I had more funerals in those eight and a half years than most ministers have in a lifetime. I had, I think, 500-some funerals, every Indian, every rancher, I helped lay out the bodies and uh, stored them off and in the house until we could uh, take care of them and uh, uh, shovel them under and had everything to do besides performing the service. And I called on hundreds and hundreds of people who were sick and dying. Well, I believed in predestination, but it was something of a problem, you know. That's a a naughty, hard doctrine to talk about. That was my attitude. But I found as I was dealing with the sick and the dying that it was the only doctrine, ultimately, that I could talk about, because as they asked me about why, why am I going through this long period of agony and suffering, why is this happening to me, I could only appeal and the only argument that made sense was the sovereignty of God is eternal decree. And Romans eight twenty eight. That's why I was so deeply, 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 deeply grieved by that horrible Arminian article in the journal not too long ago on Romans eight twenty-eight. And I'm very happy, and it's a witness to the church that they had more letters of protest about that article than any other article they've ever published. Thanks be to God. <laughs> any rate. So I was telling them, I don't know the reason for it. You can't feel it as joy, but we are told in Scripture that we can count it all joy. Why? Because God makes all things work together for good to them that love him, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So I said, you may not know why in time, or you may, but you will surely know in eternity the purpose for it, and you will see that since the very hairs of your head are all numbered, there is nothing purposeless. Well, the joy they felt at knowing it wasn't senseless, you see. They were suffering, but their suffering would have been twice as great if it were meaningless, if it were senseless, if it were pointless. But to know that in the providence of God, It was going to add up to good. That was joy. I understood why Calvin said it was for the comfort of the saints, this doctrine. The other incident uh, was a very, very dramatic one. I went to the hospital. I was told that there was this woman, a very wealthy woman, a spoiled woman, who was dying Somebody ought to witness to her before she died. So I went there, it was to a Catholic hospital, and the sisters were very cooperative always with me. And I was told she was in a coma, but I had learned by that time people who are in a coma very often are still able to hear. I've had enough of them recover and tell me so. So I went in and I read some scripture. And I said, I don't know whether you can hear me or not, but this is what the Word of God declares, and this is the way of salvation. And I prayed and left. A time or two, her eyes flickered open. I went back the next day, and she was in bed, sitting up, ready to greet me. She knew I'd been there, and uh, she said as she heard me pray, she knew the Lord was going to hear me. Well, within a week, the only problem that was keeping her from going home was that there was no one to take care of her when she went home. And as soon as they found a companion and a nurse, she was to go home. So I was reading some other passage of Scripture, and I don't recall what it was, and it had to deal with the sovereignty of God. And she objected to it, and I tried to explain it to her. She said, I don't like that. Do you mean to say that God could have healed me and have have said no to me? And I said, of course. God can say no to us in spite of anything we may want. And She said, well, I don't like that kind of a God. And I said, there is no other God. And she turned her face to the wall and wouldn't listen to me anymore. So I laughed. I came back the next day. She was in a coma and dead by night. It was that dramatic. It is a remarkable doctrine. It's something we've got to promote first and last because people can experience a lot of things. They like what they get from the Lord, but they haven't taken the Lord just for his gifts. The doctrine separates the wheat from the chaff. Yes.
0: Uh, And this is the part that always bothers me. The comfort of the saints, the Mm -hmm. first family you spoke of, that is Mm you. But the second lady and others who are laying dying know that the word has come to them time and time again Mm -hmm. through the years with no effect. How do you? How do you go to that, to, to those persons, and you offer again to Christ, and there is no response? And this yes. lady, I was assumed, had turned her face. Oh, to the she wall. died
2: unregenerate. There isn't the slightest doubt in my mind. And I think particularly guilty before God, because she had been really miraculously snatched back from the grave for a time. Well, the thing is. The results are not ours to worry about. The duty is ours. And we uh, I think one of the weaknesses we have is that we feel we have failed if we haven't uh, won everybody we witness to. And that's not our business. So whether it's in apologetics or in evangelism, whether it's from the pulpit or whether it's on a campus, you make your witness. In terms of the sovereign God and His Word, and you leave the results to God. That's His province, not ours. And it isn't that you have failed. It's what God has determined. Yes.
0: You mentioned earlier with the last time. that the Armenians have a different God? In knowledge Christ in other words they believe on Christ for that salvation because they don't believe in the God that we believe is that saying that they are really you know regenerate or not how
2: would you well of course by their fruit shall you know them but in many of these cases well, I could name someone who well to cite an example some years ago in a California city I had the misfortune I had to take part in the ministerial association I didn't want any association with them but it was a part of the requirement when I first went to that church that I was to try to cooperate for a while so I was made the president of the ministerial association and there was this citywide campaign and it was a horrible thing I won't go into the evangelist uh, he has since died and it was a mess from start to finish and terms of the financial operation and so on, but I made a study of the uh, all those who came forward and followed through in all the churches that they had gone to or had any connection with. It was an Arminian campaign, and what we saw was that these were people who went forward every time there was an evangelist that came into the community. Some of them had been saved 10, 15 times. I don't think they were ever saved. Now, there are people who are at this point schizophrenic. Now, Wesleyanism. There's no question that... uh, Wesleyan theology is humanistic at critical points. There's no question in my mind that John Wesley had some horrible, horrible things uh, to say. He was so hostile to uh, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and predestination. And you can read the debates there. Top lady who wrote Rock of Ages uh, was... uh, the great opponent of Wesley. Incidentally, there's a marvelous, marvelous story about Top Lady. Once when he was preaching the sovereignty of God in salvation, and uh, uh, one woman collared him after the, uh, I believe it was a woman, after the meeting and said, uh, Mr. Top Lady, do you mean to tell me that if you were God, you would send people to hell just because you had decided before all eternity that they were going to hell, would you do that? Would you be a merciful God if you did a thing like that? And he said, Madam, when I am God, then I will tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, all the same, the interesting thing is that the sovereignty of God is in Charles Wesley's hymns. So there's a deep cleavage there in... uh, original Wesleyanism. But the fact is that in Methodism it has gone to seed in the social gospel. The humanism has come to the fore. And in Wesleyan fundamentalism the whole emphasis is on the salvation of man. Well, that's humanism. And if your preaching is primarily geared to the saving of men, you're putting your emphasis in the wrong place. It has to be primarily on the sovereignty of God, secondarily on man. And I think that will give you far more zeal and far more power in your ministry. Yes? I just
0: thought of the a, Arminian, can you, you say, well, well
2: and he he's very inconsistent. As uh, I believe it was Warfield said long ago, every Christian who prays believes in the sovereignty of God when he prays, otherwise he would not pray.
0: About that point, the point that he's talking about the starting point, mm-hmm. even that our Christian is not Christian. And I know it's not only the problem of English, it's a difficult. And I would like to have more good.
2: Yes. The starting point. What is the starting point? Well, the Scholastic philosopher says the common ground, the starting point with the natural man is reason. You appeal to his reason. The implication of that is then that reason is the means of salvation, which we cannot accept scripturally. That's impossible. Utterly impossible. Now, there are others who say that. The starting point is to appeal to the self-interest of man. Now, in the economic sphere, there, are some, there have been some who have built a doctrine of uh, economic and political salvation on the concept of self-interest. And in the religious sphere there are those who built a whole doctrine of psychological salvation, that is, man being saved because psychologically every person has an impulse to wholeness, to hell. This is their thesis. And therefore, by appealing to their self-interest to develop themselves, and Christ is the means to their development, you can redeem them. So you say, this is the common ground. And we could go on and list means of establishing a common ground or a starting point. But what Van Til says, the only common ground is that God is our creator, and he has made all things so that when I talk to you, I'm not talking to someone who has no connection with God. The one thing that ties us both together, supposing we were total enemies, totally alien to each other, totally hostile, we're still bound by the fact that we're both made in the image of God, that God's law is written on the fibers of our being, and that we can, as we talk to each other, have that as our starting point, that God made us, that God's Law, his being, everything about him is witness to in every fiber of our being. So that the knowledge of God is inescapable knowledge. We're suppressing it. We're holding it down in unrighteousness. So what Van Til says is we must bring men to epistemological self-consciousness. We must make them aware of that fact in them. The stones shall fry out, even the stones, our Lord said. And St. Paul declares that the creation is so totally God's, that the very creation around us, underneath us, groans and travails waiting for our redemption for the new creation now of course some say that's impossible but if the ground beneath my feet responds in terms of the law of gravity it certainly responds in terms of God's word here and if the flower turns when I put it near the window it doesn't uh, show its flower to me it shows it to the sun I keep turning the pot around and the flower keeps turning the other way for me. I want to see it, but it turns the sun, the whole creation, everything in you and me and in the unregenerate man in spite of himself turns to God and it requires everything in man to hold it down in unrighteousness. Now, when the unrighteous forsake the Lord, what happens? It's not that they just leave God and they have everything else. When they, uh, the greatest poem here that illustrates this point, which is scriptural, which St. Augustine developed in the first book of his Confessions, and which then a great Catholic poet developed in one of the, uh, perhaps the greatest single Christian poem ever written. Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven. How many of you know it? good. I'm glad that a fair number of you do. And what Francis Thompson does there is to describe his own experience. I have led him down the nights and down the days and down the labyrinthine arches of the years, and he describes himself forever hiding, running away from God, and everywhere he feels God pursuing. He tries to find refuge in friends, but everything in the world of nature, of friends, of man, of children, of the dust under his feet, witnesses to God, so that the witness of God is everywhere. All things betray thee when thou betrayest me. So... When man denies God, ultimately he denies the whole world. So the picture (laughs) of hell that we have in Scripture is very important. Very important. Hell is total isolation. There is no community at hell. When you deny God, you also deny the world of friends and of man and of people. You live in an existential world. You are your own universe. There is no one else. There is weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, the gnawing of worms, the fire. What does that all signify? That's imagery for total isolation, the total burning of conscience, the uh, total gnawing of guilt, so that man in hell is totally, eternally alone. Having abandoned God, he has abandoned all things, all things. He is his own God, his own world, forever. C.S. Lewis has a good sentence. I believe it's in The Great Divorce, in which he says, Heaven is the habitation of those who say to God, Thy will be done. Hell is the habitation of those to whom God says, thy will be done. <laughs> yes? What are your views on the uh, theory of the evolution? <laughs> well, I'm trying to phrase them without being profane. I believe in literal six-day creationism. I see no ground exegetically for saying it's anything but a 24-hour day. Uh, I have fairly close contact with a man who put out the creation research uh, journal. Are you familiar with that? It's put out by a group of scientists, and it was founded by Dr. Walter Lammers, a geneticist formerly at the University of California at Los Angeles, and then chief of research for the Germain Laboratory. And here is a man who has won 11 international prizes in genetics. He's a top man in the field. And the interesting thing is, he says, it is impossible, absolutely impossible. It has to be six days, a sudden, dramatic thing. There's no other way for accounting for it. If I may take just one minute more. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of having very close contact with a research scientist for the... uh, Rocketdyne uh, Rocket uh, company uh, Rocketdyne Incorporated he is now working on a federal grant the whole purpose of which is to study the origin of the oceans which he said took place almost overnight with the flood and he has produced such dramatic evidence of it and he holds the six day creationism that Scripps Laboratory and a number of the top scientific agencies have asked the federal government, which has given it, a big grant to enable him to pursue his research. And he says it is impossible to account for anything except in terms of something happening dramatically, as scripture describes it. He was not a Christian a few years ago. We have the our library too. It's well worth reading.
0: Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library.
2: Digitized by ChristRules.com.